Michael Medved Show. Mark T. Esper was Secretary of Defense of the United States, the Chief of the Pentagon from 2019 to 2020. He is the author of a riveting memoir. It is called A Sacred Oath, Memoirs of a Secretary of Defense During Extraordinary Times. Uh, he joins us now. He has written recently about the all-volunteer force that we've had for 50 years. And he says that force is dying, and here's how to save it. Uh, do you think that uh, this government shutdown that is uh, looming at the end of this week, Secretary Esper, do you think that's going to help us uh, save our all-volunteer force and strengthen Americans' defenses? Well, good afternoon, Michael, first of all. And great to be with you and your audience. Uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, the short answer is no, it doesn't help. It sends uh, all the wrong messages about the seriousness of our government and our leaders. And, uh, look, the fact that it's it's likely that um, if we go into shutdown that the service members will lose pay until the government started back up. And that shouldn't happen, particularly for these young men and women who come all come from all across our great land and right now are risking their lives, uh, you know, sailing on a ship in the South China Sea on the – demilitarized zone in Korea or maybe flying an air mission in Europe, um, it, they shouldn't have to put up with that nonsense. Uh, NBC was covering the story, and I, I mentioned it before, of a um, service member named Stephen Booth, who is a police officer for the Air Force in Kansas. And he's planning to, um, to help to feed his family during the shutdown, which, of course, could last who knows how long it could certainly last for more than a month uh to feed his family with meat he can get from hunting from eggs from his chickens and driving on the side for uber for for someone who's serving his country in uniform is isn't doesn't it make you angry well it absolutely i mean nobody should have to face those circumstances but that you have to make tough choices about uh you know how you're going to spend your dollars and look these problems are also um um worsened by the fact that in many cases and my wife went through this as well as a military spouse the spouses can't find permanent work in many cases because they travel every th three years from base to base employers are are um, uh, not interested in hiring them because they know they'll be gone and, uh, and so you have a double whammy on families because, look, at the end of the day, it's not just the service member who serves. It's the spouse, too, and the kids who have to pick up every two or three years, move, go to a new school, try and find a new job. And all these things weigh down on, a, on, on an average military family that doesn't happen to your typical American. I know. Absolutely right. And, and the point is that you write in uh, your Washington Post piece about the difficulties we have right now with recruitment. And part of it is that there are so many young Americans who, because of drug use or obesity uh, or criminal records, are not eligible for service. And of those people who are eligible for service, they see the way that our military are treated in many cases, and it discourages them. What do we need to do differently to attract the volunteers, uh, to attract the recruits that we need? Let me underscore your points real quick for the audience, because it's quite dramatic when you look at the numbers, because it's not just the numbers themselves, but the trend lines. Um, in that piece, I write that when I was Secretary of the Army, the number of American youth 17 to 24 that, that qualified, qualified now, 
was, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, that did not qualify for service was 71%. In the years since then to today, 77% do not qualify. So a 6% swing. And then when you look at the number of American youth interested in serving, right, that number has dropped from 13% to 9%. So the numbers are all going in the wrong direction. And I say it's for a variety of demographics, social and cultural changes. And a big part of this is just unfamiliarity uh, with the military because there aren't as many bases as there were before, not as many Americans served. You know, at uh, at the end of the Vietnam War, most Americans knew somebody who served in the military so they could they could learn about the military and, and kind of be disabused of myths or learn about opportunities or the virtue of service itself. But today we don't have that. And so as I outlined that, outlined in that piece, how do we go about doing that? Part of it, I think, begins with, with creating or growing the pool of qualified applicants, right? So rather than having 77% unqualified, how do we reduce that number? And I call for things like restoring the president's physical fitness test, which uh, certainly I, maybe you, grew up with. You had to take that test once a year, and if you passed, you got a nice little badge. But that spoke to kids throughout their childhood about the importance of physical fitness, incentivized it for them. And I think anybody would agree today, um, youth lack of fitness in our youth is a problem, and it's marked most, uh, most notably by obesity. So everybody benefits if our kids are in better shape. But there's other things we should do, too. I talk about expanding uh, junior uh, JROTC, JROTC, uh, because it exposes young kids to um, to the program, to the military. Today, fewer than 20% of schools in the United States do this. Most are in the southeast. And then um, I go on to state about we've got to give military recruiters equal access to our high schools. That's not happening across this land. Yeah, I was in junior ROTC in high school. and uh, And you were right. Even though my dad was in the Navy during the war, uh, the familiarity with uh, just that chain of command and then going away for an encampment uh, on spring break with ROTC. It was all profound and has stayed with me. And the idea that that program is, is only in 20% of high schools, it used to be everywhere. Fewer than 20%. I think the actual number that, that I found was 16%. But look, you're right. It gives you an exposure to military life. And you could say, hey, this, this isn't so bad. It's not as scary as I thought. I can actually camp out overnight and, and survive and wake up the next morning. And I enjoy the camaraderie of the people that I'm with. And, um, and um, you know, the discipline is not tyrannical, as is often portrayed in movies. So, uh, look, that goes a long way to, 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 um, uh, to, to explaining the military to young people and getting them used to uh, or get it, giving them the, an opportunity to see another career path. Because, look, despite some of the examples we talked at the beginning of the show, the military pays relatively well. In fact, if you look at the numbers, while we have a big recruiting problem, we don't have a retention problem. In other words, once they get into the military, most want to stay. They keep extending for year after year, and uh, they enjoy what they're doing. They enjoy what they're learning, the people they're, they are associating with. And it just shows you the contrast that once we can ca- kind of get them into the service, then they find there's a great career path ahead of them. Yeah, and it, isn't it a better solution to the problem of college affordability than basically forgiving student debt to actually use the benefits of uh, a, a an additional education, which are very generous if you serve in the military, no? Absolutely. Very generous benefits. Uh, the uh, college uh, um, scholarship money is open to everybody who serves, and, and in some cases, of course, if you're in a, in a, in a specialty that 
is really in a scarce supply. You get reenlistment and promotion bonuses. I mean, there's a, a lot of money we're putting at America's youth that are in the military. And, and it's not just for them. I mean, it's, it's the nature of the military that we want to we want our people to further their education, whether it's a junior enlisted so, uh, soldier or airman, marine, sailor, an NCO or an officer. Continuing education is very important to us. And so um, we think that just improves the professionalism of the, of the service and the um, and the quality of the individual. One of the big issues has to do with aid to Ukraine. And no, it's not a blank check. It's a specified amount that would allow the Ukrainians to continue defending their independence. And instead, uh, there are people in the House and the Senate who are insisting that Ukraine be cut off immediately with uh, no money for supplies, ammunition, etc., uh, Mark Esper was Defense Secretary of the United States. Uh, is that uh, a a good idea to take the money that uh, that that people say that they would quote save by not sending it to Ukraine, and to instead uh, fortify our own border? That's the slogan that people are talking about. Why doesn't that work, Secretary Esper? Look, it's not a bad idea, uh, and, and I say that as a Reagan Republican, right? Or I should say it is a bad idea to do that, and I say that as a Reagan Republican because Ronald Reagan would stand firm with the, with the democracies of the world, particularly these young, fledgling democracies like Taiwan and Ukraine that are facing off against much bigger foes run by autocrats. And in the case of China, obviously the Chinese Communist Party and with Putin, a clear authoritarian. Look, in terms of military aid to Ukraine, we provided about $45 billion dollars. It's been all for specific items, purchased, by the way, from American firms for the most part. So American jobs are being sustained. And there's a detailed accounting and audit trail going all the way to Ukraine. Uh, there's, there's not a blank check. And look, I wouldn't support a blank check, and I would want accountability as well. But that's, there, there's none of that happening, or at least no evidence right now. But for that $45 billion, what we've been able to see is for the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian people, brave as they are, have... Uh, taken down a few notches, the one of the largest and most capable militaries in the world, the Russian military. And uh, they've done it without asking for Americans to fight their fight. And so my view, that's a good investment to knock down uh, and take apart the Russian army. And, um, and we should continue to support them, not just because it's in our interest, but it's the right thing to do. These people are fighting and dying, men, women, children. I, don't, I, I can't think of a, a war crime that Putin hasn't committed so far in this 18-month uh, or so war. So uh, we, we should support them, continue to support them. Look, we should also, we should also secure the border. I, I completely agree with my Republican colleagues on that front, but it's not a one or the other choice. Um, put a few billion dollars to, to the Department of Family and Security. Grow the border force. Uh, I, I believe in securing the border with a wall or fencing or whatever, but we can do both. We're, we're a wealthy country. We're just going to make smart choices. And in terms of uh, making uh, those smart choices, the uh, consequences uh, in terms of our alliances of, uh, uh, as you know, there are some people within our party and the Republican Party who uh, believe that we should be less involved, less committed, or even exit from NATO. Uh, that idea? A very bad idea. Look, NATO is the most successful uh, alliance in history. It's kept the peace in Europe uh, since the um, um, since the beginning of the Cold War. 
It's grown over time. We'll soon have 32 members uh, once we add Sweden on board. And look, the, the fact of the matter is, if there's one advantage we have over the Russians and the Chinese, and that is that we have allies and partners, people who will fight with us, who will help supply us, who will provide industrial base, who will share intelligence, who will share their land, do all those things. China and Russia really don't have that, unless you want to count North Korea and Nicaragua and, and uh, Mali and places like that. But we have allies Belarus. and yeah, and and so if we go to war, if we can go to war war with an ally standing next to us, which means one fewer American has to go to the fight. That's a good thing. We should build up our alliances and our partnerships. Uh, in terms of uh, the the future uh, in this in this country right now, with the political system the way it is, the dysfunction the way it is, with seventy percent of people saying they don't want either Trump or Biden to run for president. Uh, where do you think we're going as a country? What's the most hopeful sign that you see? Well, I'm going to give you the, the, the pessimistic sign, then I'll, I'll give you some hope here. Uh, look, we do need a new generation of leaders from both parties. The American people in poll after poll are telling us that, are telling the parties that. That's number one. Number two, you know, when I'm on the road, I speak to audiences, I often get asked, what's the greatest uh, threat to our country? And, uh, and without exception, people think I'm going to say Russia or China or something like that. And it's not. The greatest uh, threat to our democracy is extreme political partisanship coming from both sides. And until we solve that, we won't be able to address the big problems, whether it's uh, modernizing to, uh, to take on China one day or fixing Social Security or dealing with immigration, uh, things like that. We've got to get our our politics right. So what, what's the anecdote, uh, Michael, that I look forward to? I, if you go back in time, uh, you and I both remember this. There was a period in American history, the 70s, when we were really down. We had a, sounds familiar now, a president that was impeached, uh, the country in disarray. We had, had another president come in behind him. And for, and for four years, uh, we, were, we were down on ourselves. And we were told uh, we couldn't afford heating oil, so put on sweaters. Uh, we had high inflation, so forth and so on. And then we had a new leader come onto the stage, my hero, Ronald, uh, Ronald Reagan, who talked about America as that shining capital, I'm sorry, that shining city on the hill, and really inspired us all, lifted us up, and we had the 80s were fantastic in, in a number of ways. So, look, I, I think I'm very hopeful that the American system will produce that next generation of leaders. Uh, somebody, whether it's Republican or Democrat, obviously I would prefer a Republican, but somebody who's going to bring us together, lift us up, and kind of chart us ahead into this 21st century in a way that we will continue to lead and take care of our people and prosper and grow. That's beautifully said. Uh, Secretary Mark Esper, um, are you going to be watching the um, presidential debate tonight with the seven Republican candidates, not including President Trump? Uh, you know, I, I probably will uh, because I, I want to I'm, – I'm hoping uh, – that one of them is going to really shine and take off, and uh, and, and Trump will fade at some point. I, I was inspired by uh, the last debate. I thought it was a strong debate. We had, we saw some people like Nikki Haley and Mike Pence really shine, and uh, I'm hopeful. I want to see these candidates do well. I'm I'm convinced that uh, you know there's a, there's a handful of them that would do a really good job and run well. Uh, I, I personally I think they could beat Joe Biden, but uh, well, sure. I want to see the the, the debate performance. Yes, I'm good. Well, I'm glad you're going to be watching. I hope that uh, everybody does. Uh, in terms of uh, your sacred oath, memoirs of a Secretary of Defense during extraordinary times, uh, 
what's the best way that we put this this awful nightmare of January 6th and the riot in the Capitol building behind us? Well, there has to be accountability. There has to be a reckoning about what happened and put it in the right context and, and hold pe- people accountable for that. You know, that's kind of underway. And we got to be careful that's not politicized in the process, right? There's We've, we've seen some of that, at least I think so, here and there. But there has to be accountability, and, and I think it'll take some time to heal. It'll take some time for people to look back upon that and say, yeah, that was wrong, we shouldn't have done that, or, or that was wrong and he shouldn't have said that. I mean, I, I think that's, uh, it's going to take a little time to, to heal, but we have to get through 2024 first. And, um, and, and Donald Trump is, is still a force on the stage, certainly within the, the right, right wing of the Republican Party. And... Um, that's why I'm hopeful that one of these candidates that will be on the stage tonight is going to rise. It's going to take off. We'll find um, uh, people who are willing to fund him or her, see, see a strong backing and say, yeah, this is the person I want to lead the Republican Party in the 21st century, a new generation leader with fresh ideas, with no grievances about the past, and somebody that will not just unify the Republican Party, but has the potential to unify the country if he or she wins.